Welcome to Christian Life Church Podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. Well, we're continuing our conversation, um, looking at this whole concept of doing life together. I don't know if we can put that slide up for a moment as I just talk around the introduction. I don't know how you're doing with all of this. Um, it's uh, something I need to say, I suppose, today, is that one of the greatest things we could ever explore in the life of a church is not just what happens on a Sunday, because that's a very small window into people's lives. If you think about that, most people, their whole week is preoccupied with a thousand, if not more, different concepts of life and truths. And then on a Sunday, we get this one moment when we're meant to speak truth into people's hearts and lives with the hope that that truth will sustain them and keep them and cause them to flourish um, throughout the course of their week. And um, if you were in advertising, you would not go with those odds. <laughs> those odds do not work in our current world where we are bombarded consistently with all kinds of concepts of what is true and what isn't true. And so it's not surprising to me that uh, the church in many ways is a little confused about what is or what isn't real. And when you start to talk about some things that can help people in that process, sometimes people's lives are so busy and they've got so much going on, they struggle a little bit to imagine their possibility of engaging with something more. They always feel, I think, perhaps, and I think this is a current phenomena, overwhelmed by all kinds of things. Anybody feel overwhelmed by all kinds of things? Tell the truth. Yeah, you do. So I know that into that atmosphere every Sunday I speak. <laughs> That, that, that experience of feeling overwhelmed by life and overwhelmed by all the things. And uh, as you can imagine, it means that whatever I have to say sometimes is filtered through that lens. It's filtered through the many voices in our world. It's filtered through the busyness and preoccupations of our lives and that sense of us being overwhelmed. So the chances of something's landing in your heart, well, it just has to be Jesus that does that. It just has to be because there's no alternative. And uh, I always trust the Holy Spirit to minister to people. I'm not a minister. I'm just a human being. The only minister in this room is God himself. And he comes to speak life. And sometimes he hovers over a, a, a part of our lives. Um, a bit like, um, you know, in, the, in Genesis chapter 1, it says that the Spirit of God hovered over the, the gases and the masses and the, and the kind of chaos. God hovers over something. Um, if you ever want to know how God speaks to you, these are the two things that happen. Um, in fact, he created the world by these, uh, these truths. Um, the Spirit has to hover first, and when the Spirit hovers over a part of our life, and then the Word speaks to us, it does not return to God void, but it will accomplish what he set it out to do. So, I have a long kind of history with these two things. I felt God show me many years ago that the best points to speak are when the Spirit is moving. When the Spirit is moving and you speak, people's hearts are open because God can do in a, in a heart what I could never do with words. And, and I'm trusting this morning, I've already sensed the Holy Spirit here. Thank you, worship team. Um, it's like a trip down memory lane, but thank you, worship team. <laughs> that, you know, the greatest hits of Christianity, I loved it. Uh, and I feel that there was a gentleness and, and a, a poignancy to the, the presence of God. And I'm trusting that what I'm about to say to you will land in good soil. Now, I want to be honest with you. Um, I have an agenda. I have an agenda. You should actually celebrate it. I know some of you find it a bit exasperating. But I would like the church to grow. 
It's my agenda, just put it out there for you. I think that's why they hired me. And if it doesn't happen, that'll be why they fire me. <laughs> okay, so my whole life depends on the church growing. I know for those who attend church, that's probably not their greatest priority. I think when you attend a church, I think you probably come hoping to receive. I, I think that's good, but it's not enough. And um, the reason it's not enough is because you are also meant to give. And if you think sitting in your chair is giving, then we should discuss a few things. Because actually the body only functions well when all of the members play their part in doing what Christ has called them to do. And in case you're thinking, well, I'm not a preacher or I'm not a worship leader, thank God. Just thank God for that, because that comes with a whole other circus attached to it. Okay? Whatever you have been given by God to do, you must find it. The two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you discovered why. And when you discover why you were born, what God gave you, what God created you to do, you can spend the rest of your life exploring that. And everything I've learned over the years, I've learned this to be true, that when God calls us to serve, he doesn't call us to serve under duress. I think we have this impression that God wants us to serve if it's, you know, we're, we're in a bad mood about it, so he must be happy. When we serve God, we serve with a joyful heart. We give of ourselves to him because he has given of himself to us. And there's something sweet in that transaction that cannot be experienced if you are somebody who's a spectator. So we all have to find out why we were here. What has God created you for? Now, there are a number of things that are very obvious. One is to love him with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. The other is less, I think, easy to do, and that is love your neighbor. I mean, have you seen your neighbor? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. I mean, I, I would be okay if it was just God. It's people. Do you know what I'm saying? And I'm the people you're thinking about whenever you say it's people. I know. It's people. It's okay. If I was a, a living somewhere separate from people, I think I wouldn't probably sin. Well, I'd have nobody to sin with, would I? So. But it's hanging out with people. People are so, so um, hard sometimes, aren't they? Talk to me. Come on. But God, in his great wisdom, threw us all together and said, work it out yourselves. I've given you a manual. There's some things I think will help you. Do your best to love me. Do your best to love each other. And in the doing of those two things, we find what we would call, I suppose, in spiritual terms, our calling. This is who I am, and this is who I'm supposed to be. And as gently and as beautifully as I can say that, I think that's probably half the battle in most contexts, because we don't see ourselves as called. But everyone in this room has been called. Hello. For what? I don't know. That's up to you and God to work out. But we've all been called. We were chosen from the foundations of the earth for works of service. That's what we were chosen for. And it's great that you love God. But love has skin. And it needs to turn up somewhere. You know, and it needs to express itself in some practical ways. And 
when we're asking for people to volunteer, we're trying to help you engage with what might be your calling, might be where God has asked you to serve. And one of the ways I think that I believe the church can come to its fullness and experience what it is to be fully flourishing in the things that God has called us to is small groups. I think it's very hard to flourish when you're a Sunday visitor. I'm sorry, I just wanted to keep it real for you today. Is that okay? It's very hard to flourish because I think we don't get those opportunities for something deeper than just a quick hello with someone. And while we like to pretend that this is fellowship, this is not fellowship, this is a crowd. And real fellowship requires of me to unveil who I am, okay, with honesty and integrity, and allow someone else to do the same. Intimacy is this, these three things, in, to, me, see. Okay, and we are called to have intimacy with God and intimacy with each other, in, to, me, see. This is who I am, who are you? What's going on in you? What's happening in you? And uh, a quick shake of hands at the door or a nod to somebody in your seat or when we walk around and say how lovely it is to see you and I like that shirt from Primani, that's not fellowship. That, that's not fellowship. That's just a crowd. It's casual. It doesn't have the same impact on our lives. You'll never flourish if that's all you experience. Now, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, why is he saying these things? Ask yourself why. Would my job not be easier if I just shut up and put up? I'm saying these things to you because these are the things that cause you to come to fullness. And you need and should desire to come to fullness. And fullness is what Jesus purchased for you. Jesus didn't call you to an assembly of people to sing songs. He called you into a living organism called the body of Christ. And that living organism is the best reflection of Christ here on earth. And as any church leader would know, and I won't be the first to have said this, I'm sure I won't be the last in your lives, the church has this wonderful opportunity. We stand at the door of adversity. Once again in society, the world is against us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because in the midst of adversity and persecution, the church rises to her greatest stature and strength. And Jesus is coming not for the bride of Frankenstein, okay, but for the bride of Christ, and he's coming for a bride that will be in direct stature and measure to the bridegroom. You know, in the natural, a man always marries up. If you're not punching above your weight, you will not be kept, and your attention will move. Hello? Do you think Jesus is coming for something less? You think he's coming for something less? He's coming for a bride that is spotless without blemish or wrinkle. And he's coming for a bride that is strong and fierce and passionate and full of love. Thank you for coming. In the words of David Woodfield, are you glad you came? So let's talk a little bit about that bride, God's church. I believe we are at a point where we need to make some decisions about what we think the future looks like. And um, historical accounts and more recent 
endeavours would suggest that churches that are large in size can fall into the trap of just being attractional without being missional. And, and sometimes we take what we know to be the presence of God and we reduce it and we reduce it and we reduce it because we want to be as seeker-sensitive as we possibly can. So we don't want any shenanigans. Don't you sing too loud or we'll put you out. Okay, because we're trying to take something eternal and make it accessible to the mortal. Now, when you reduce that, what you have is, is a, a parody. You have a, almost like a, a potted version of what Christianity looks like. And um, I, I would like to say, for me, I have done these things. I have been involved in seeker-sensitive stuff for, for many years. I think when I was here before, that was my gig. I did all of that. And actually, there's a value to that. But actually, people are not looking for people who are like them. There's an irrelevance in relevance. Speak to me. Why would you, why, if you were looking for hope and you were hopeless, why would you try and find somebody who was as hopeless as you? If you were looking for something to live for and you didn't want to live for anything, would you hang out with people who were just like you? Now, I do think there's a demonic part to that where we are attracted to people. You know, if people are down, they tend to attract people who are down. There was a woman in our church in Glasgow, she was a vortex. If you walked anywhere near her chair, she'd suck you in. <laughs> Honestly, I used to avoid her like the plague, and she always wanted to speak before the sermon. And her name was Joy. Her name was Joy. She was the most joyless individual I've ever met in my life. And there was a whole, the place was packed, but there, there was at least 10 chairs around her where nobody sat. She was a vortex. <laughs> and if you went anywhere near it, you were sucked into her depression. You were sucked into her anxieties. You were sucked in. Now, we wanted to care for her, and we tried to care for her, but she needed to care for herself. Some people, they're so kind of chaotic on the inside, they bring the circus to town. And so we tried to counsel her. I mean, I would come out of the counseling sessions, and I've counseled people for years. Some people tell me I'm quite good at that. I would come out, and I would feel suicidal. I'd think, oh, God, <laughs> can this really be the world we're living in? Honestly, I, I had to arrange for intercessors to come and pray for me when I finished counseling. I said, come in, lay hands on me, cast everything off me. I felt like I was, I was slimed by some kind of spiritual thing. And uh, while I didn't have, you know, eloquent words to put that into some kind of theological truth, I do realize that people carry, the Bible uses a phrase, a countenance. And that countenance is the essence of who God is in them and who they are in God. Now, if that countenance is, is not of God, we as God's people can discern that. So she said all the right things, but she didn't live the life. And she couldn't live the life because she had some strongholds. And a stronghold is anything that has a stronghold over the way you think or the way you act or the way you operate. And she had strongholds. No matter how much joy, no matter how much celebration, she'd sit there. And people in Glasgow used to dance. I mean, you people are tame. They used to dance at the front. The kids went wild in the worship. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm looking forward to those days. And she sat there like a vortex. <laughs> and I said to her, you know, you need some friends. You need to get into a small group. You need to be involved with some people because it would be better for you. At least you'd have people to do a journey with. And um, she went to the house group. She was there three weeks and five people left. <laughs> and they've been there for 15 years. <laughs> I wonder if you're one of those people. And so as a body, we have broken parts. And in the other extreme, we have people who are so on fire for God that if you sit anywhere near where they are, something spiritual becomes available to you. And somewhere between those extremes, I live. And you probably live also. But whether we like it or we don't like it, God called us to relationship. And the church is more than just Sunday mornings. And as you walk through the scriptures, you realize that there's so much more for us to experience as people. Let me take you to some scriptures this morning. We're going to hurtle through a number of them. Get your fingers ready. They'll be burning by the end. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, this is what it says of the church. Now you are Christ's body and individual members of it. In other words, I can't be the body of Christ on my own. And this notion that I can live my spiritual life as a hermit and not connect with other believers is a phenomenon, I think, that's come out of lockdown, and it's not actually spiritually true. You can't really function as a body. I mean, how can I say that I am a body when half of me is over here and a third of me is over there or whatever is left, that there's no possible way we can function as a body. We need each other. Individually, we are called to one body, to one Christ, to one salvation, and to one truth. Colossians 1 verse 18, it says he is also head of the body. It's talking of Christ here, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And then we recognize here that the body has a governing aspect to it, and that governing aspect is the Word, which is Christ himself. We are not just here casually with all of our opinions. We are governed by Christ himself. He is the head of this church. This is his church. We are his body these hands are his to use as he seeks to use them. These lips, which are beautiful, by the way, these lips, they are given to me so that I could praise God and declare his wonders while I'm here on the earth. But he is my governance, not my conviction of this, that, or the other, but he and his word and his truth. And his truth is a supreme truth to every other truth. When we say at the name of Jesus, what we're saying is at his truth, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So when you come together like this or whether we come together in small groups, that, you know, we may have some people facilitating things. I come to facilitate things on a Sunday. But you're coming under the auspices and the authority 
of the God of supremacy. He is over all, above all, and in all. And He is the governing body of this church. Now, we belong to a movement of churches, but above that movement, that's just, let's call it second-tier management. Above that movement, there is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and His word and His ways are perfect, and all He does is righteous and just. And we come together in submission to that reality. Ephesians 1 verse 22 says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things in the church. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. And this is us, okay? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. If there was ever a scripture to dine out on, that's it there. So we have a responsibility. What do citizens have a responsibility to do? To fulfill what the king of that country desires to be the plan and the purpose. And we have a king, not of this country, although we do now, but we have a superior king of every country who has a plan for those who are the citizens in that kingdom. And that's you and that's me. And so I can't be a passive citizen. I'm called to be an active partaker of the extension of a kingdom that has no end. Amen? He goes on to talk of us as saints. In other words, stop thinking of yourself as people who are sinners and start seeing yourself in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are born again, spirit-filled and set apart for the purposes of God. If there was ever a shift needed in the body of Christ, it's that one. If I could just take that little knob and switch it over here and we started to see ourselves in the light of the truth of what's happened to us and stop being orientated and therefore disorientated from the purposes of God. We want the life Jesus offers, but we think the life we had before. We need our minds renewed, we need our hearts refreshed, and we need to align ourselves to the purposes of God. God has so much for us. And the apostles and the prophets are those who laid the foundation stones of the church. God called them to lay the foundation stones. Now, in the scriptures, when you see something for the first time, you pay attention to it a little bit more closely because it sets a course. When God does something for the first time, he's setting a course, and that course becomes the pattern, or indeed, I suppose, what we would call the, the um, manifestation of his plan and his purposes. Okay, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit, say one spirit for me, we were all baptized into... And here are the segregations that the world places on our lives, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. In other words, we were a people fragmented, separated, doing our own thing, living our own lives, fulfilling our own destiny, but now we are a people who are called by one spirit to live differently, to live collectively for the purposes of God. Romans 12, verses 6 to 8 since we have gifts, what do we have? Come on, your miseries. What do we have? 
since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. You have a grace on your life. That's the revelation you have of Christ. And God has called you to specific and indeed glorious expression of the life of the Spirit. And uh, I can't do what you can do and vice versa. And thank God for that. We are better when we understand that. And I think that's why I hate uniformity in the church. Because uniformity tries to make everybody think the same, talk the same, act the same. I love unity. Unity is I can stand in my own reality in Christ. You can stand in yours. And what we do when we live with that kind of clarity and stop trying to change people to be like me or change people to be like you. You know, if, if your goal is to change people to see the world, you change them. You're wasting your time. It's a complete waste of time. Here's what you need to do is take what you understand about Jesus and offer it in service. And when somebody else takes what they understand about Jesus and offer it in service, and when you look at that, it's like a mosaic. God paints a picture of Christ and his kingdom that is so vibrant and so full of color and so full of beauty that the world would be astounded. Anyway, just a thought. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them. accordingly if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith if service in his serving or he who teaches in his teaching or he who exhorts in his exhortation or he who gives in his liberality who he leads with diligence he who shows mercy with cheerfulness that kind of tells you that we are called to something more than just sitting in a congregation without any realization that what we carry, what we carry, what grace has been placed in our lives is not just for our benefit, but it's for the benefit of those who are part of that body. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and this is important because collectively and through unity and through mutuality and real kingdom citizenship, transformation becomes available. Let me say something to this. You cannot be transformed by navel-gazing. The word transformation in the scriptures, it, it means metamorphosis. It's completely radically different. And um, what we tend to do is self-reinvention. But how can a dead man raise a dead man to life? There is one who is alive. His name is Christ Jesus. Okay? And so he has placed us in a context where we are allowed and privileged to see his resurrection power in another person's body. And um, collectively, we grow into maturity through the evidences and experiences and our own application of that which God is asking us to. So some of us, I'm going to say some things today you're going to hate me for, are stuck somewhere because we haven't allowed the body to minister to us. We're stuck somewhere. We're on our spiritual journey in this worldly concept of individualism and we think me, myself, and I will make the grade. No. If that was the case, Jesus would not have gathered 12 disciples. 
Jesus started the kingdom of heaven on earth with a small group. Twelve disciples. Okay, now if that's Jesus' strategy, I hazard a guess he knows a lot more about things than you and me. Okay, he didn't start with the crowd. He started with twelve and he picked them. He picked them very specifically. I'll come to that next week. So, but we, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers for our entertainment. And to keep us connected. No, you know, I, I have this issue with some very dynamic gifts and explain to you what I mean by that is you know I know that if I called a certain person and they came to this church there would not be a seat available and the reason for that is because they have a very profound prophetic gift and because in the church generally we don't see that gift in that fullness people come will come from all over to hear this lady speak because she's profoundly prophetic but what happens when she leaves? What do we do with what we've heard? God never intended these supernatural capacities and gifts to be statuses of, of celebrity. Every one of these gifts is given to us to equip the body in what? Service. Service again. And, and I think there's a gap sometimes between the actual actualization of a gift because we can come to a conference and be blessed and hear and experience. We actually need to step out and prophesy ourselves. Or we need, if it's an evangelistic conference, we need to step out and evangelize. And Jesus didn't say, lo, I'll be with you as you sit in the church to the ends of the days. He said, go into all the world. Okay, in other words, take what you have discovered and make it accessible and available to people outside the context. Now, some of you are getting upset with me. I am really not sorry. Okay, because if we are growing and we want to grow into all that Christ has for us with the greatest sincerity, what we're doing doesn't work. And you have to be honest enough to say, there's a whole city out here and we're meeting in here. How do we build that bridge? How do, and this is how you build that bridge. This is what I'm trying to help you understand. That any time anyone comes with a superior gift, a, a wonderful, I love prophetic gifts. It's where I've lived for years. But actually I've noticed you can come to a conference and not be transformed one bit. And you can be stunned by what people do in a room and it never turns up in your front room. Now somewhere, that's like looking in the mirror and forgetting what you look like. I'll never forget what I look like. When I look in the mirror, I see my father, and he's been dead about 12 years. You can imagine how disorientating that is first thing in the morning. But all of those gifts are for the equipping of the saints for works of service. Amen? So what am I trying to say to you? I'm going to say this to you, and I want you to hear it from the heart it comes from. We have, over the centuries, made much about the message of the gospel, and rightly so. The greatest efforts have been put into solid, sound doctrine and good theology. Amen and amen. But what the church has failed to do 
is look at the methods of Jesus. There is indeed a message, but Jesus clearly had some methodology. He had a strategy, and that strategy deserves our attention. That strategy requires us to partner with a plan already in place that really worked. It really worked. And you know, it's not just in the New Testament. In Exodus 18, verses 14 to 26, we see that Jethro comes to Moses, the leader of millions of people who taken out of slavery and into freedom, or not so much freedom, and the reality is he's doing every single thing. I mean, these people come to him day after day, night after night, looking for counsel on, on marital problems or children or whatever, and, and Moses is like a wet rag and so his father-in-law sees what's happening to him, and he, he comes to him, and he says to him, Moses, what you're doing is not working. It's not enough. Now, can I just say this to you? If you're relying on me to build the church, if you're relying on me to minister, if you're relying on anyone that stands on here to be the answer to all of those questions, it's not enough. It's not enough. And so he tells him, and you should read it for yourself there. He tells him to carve things up into places and give individuals responsibility. And they work over tens and hundreds and thousands. And, and as, he, as you look across that, you realize that God has more than a message. He has a methodology of how to extend the blessing of his kingdom. Coming to the New Testament, Acts chapters 1 and 2, we see that that same methodology carries the message of Jesus Christ out into the city of Jerusalem. And in a city of about maybe 200 to 250,000 people, um, over 100,000 Christians lived and abided in that city. And that makes greater sense, doesn't it, of the fact of how intimidated the Roman Empire was about the incredible movement of God in the church. That makes sense of why they persecuted them. You don't persecute people that are no threat to your empire. So they went way overboard to get rid of every Christian poss possible. And in spite of that great, great massacre of many individuals who love the Lord, they multiplied on a daily basis. You couldn't stop the kingdom from extending. They had two forms in which they fulfilled the mandate that was on their lives. They met collectively in the temple courts, and as we said a couple of weeks ago, that's the multiple courts around the outer perimeter of the temple, and they met in each other's homes. And, and those two dynamics, that strategic way in which God fulfilled and, and desired to see his church function is exactly how he still wants to fulfill and desire to see his church function here today. Large worship and small fellowship. And we said, I think, last week that the church must grow bigger, but it also must become smaller. That the micro and the macro are both important in the economy of God. Now, a lot of churches have the message of the Bible, but they don't always practice the methods of the Bible. And I want to say to you that this strategy, I've seen this strategy work, okay? In Kensington Temple, quick story, I think it was around the early 90s, Pastor Colin Dye 
went out to a place called Bogota in Colombia, and he witnessed a phenomena. The church in Bogota in Colombia had grown so extensively, they didn't have um, stadiums big enough to house the gatherings, and in these gatherings, there's primarily leaders. And they, when I say leaders, they're just ordinary people like you and I, but they had been given what they would call a cell, a small group, and in that small group, those small groups grew and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. So you would have, I think I, think I went to visit this particular place in January of 2019, and I spoke to a man, <laughs> okay, just an ordinary guy, from, I think he was uh, from Switzerland, and he has 35,000 people in his church. I spoke to another man. Now, so this is not just happening in South America where everybody says yes and amen to the pastor. Okay, amen, thank you, thank you. Should have become precursed with yes. Yes, amen, okay? Because in some cultures, the pastor's right, even if he's wrong, he's right. Okay, and people do what they're told, whether they feel like it or not. Wouldn't that, Jesus, <laughs> wouldn't that be just lovely? Wouldn't that be wonderful, God? Okay, certain cultures, there's a hierarchical structure, um, patriarchal structure, and they just do, the pastor says it must be right, and so we'll start a small group. And, and they found that even with those kind of cultural nuances, the churches grew Churches grew out of one person who decided to gather two other people, okay? And those two other people gathered two other people that gathered two other people, gathered two other people, and eventually the church arrived after about seven or eight years, and it was 30,000 people. And you're thinking, nah. I know, I know what you're thinking. That couldn't be. Well, as True as I'm riding this bike. <laughs> no, it happened. And you know, I would say of the individual I spoke to, he wasn't that interesting. So it must have been the people that grew the church. He got up to preach and I fell asleep. And Jane said to me, 30 something thousand people. Obviously, they've got a great team. What we saw, what we witnessed is the body, the body of Christ working in fullness. Someone say amen. amen. Not the pastor working in fullness or the three people on the team. The body working in fullness. And so Pastor Colin decided that he'd come home and he would start thinking and praying and he took the church out of um, house groups and he divided the church up into cells, and nobody was happy. But something ridiculous began to happen. One church, a Lithuanian church, the people took seriously the cell structure. Everybody wins someone. Everybody's discipling someone, okay? That whole process, and that church grew to over 3,500 people in the space of a year and a half. I'm just saying. It's great to have the message, but we also need to understand there's a, there's a method. Jesus has a strategy, and that strategy is not just the gathered moments that we have, it's the scattered moments that we have, where people meet together in each other's homes with glad and sincere hearts, 
Two things played a significant role in the early church. One was persecution. And here's another one. There were no church buildings. One of the earliest churches that was built for congregations happened about 300 years after Jesus was here on earth. So I'm going to run through these things if I can very quickly in my last five minutes just to quantify and qualify my position on this matter. Five reasons why small groups are important. The first one is they're biblical. Jesus had a small group. The early church met in small groups. Second thing is they're personal. You can have really good relationships in a small group in a way you can't in a large congregation. And that means personal fellowship. That means personal care. You get to be heard. You get to hear. You can have a conversation with someone. You can stop the speaker and say, I have no clue what you're talking about. Now, I know you'd like to do that on Sundays, but you can't. Okay, but you can do it in a small group. And you can learn from other people from their life experience. All of that is available in a small group setting. And I was really shaken this week when I realized that Jesus said this, we're two or more. He didn't say we're 20 or 30 or even 10 or 8. He said we're two or more. Our idea of small is not his idea of small. And the reason that God used that particular phrase is because small is better as far as fellowship and maturing in in Christ is concerned. In the large gatherings, we don't always get someone speaking into the place where we find ourselves, but in a small setting, someone can say, oh, I used to think like that, and, and this is what I learned, and we learn from one another. The third thing is small groups are flexible. You know, I think we're a little bit caught up in the fact that every small group in this church has to happen on a Tuesday night, but in KT, people would meet in workplaces, they would meet in Starbucks. In fact, one of the biggest groups used to meet in Starbucks, and it got so good at bringing custom to Starbucks, okay, in the lunch hour, they gave them discount on all the coffee. And who doesn't want discount in Starbucks? Okay, so that group multiplied so many times, and they started to have a network of groups that met in Starbucks. It's a strategy. They can meet anywhere at any time, as long as the people are free to do so. The fourth thing is that small groups are expendable. Geographically, they can go anywhere. They can be anywhere. They can meet anywhere. There's no restrictions. And fifthly, small groups are economical. Do you know, sometimes we're meeting here when we could be meeting somewhere else. And the cost of running here, I just want to let you know, if you think your gas bill is going to be heavy this year, spare a little thought for what could happen to us. Okay. There are other things. Eight things that small groups do in the scriptures. First one is they studied the Bible together. Now, in the New Testament, they didn't have the Bible, but they had the Septuagint, and they would study the scriptures together. I think the commentaries I've read seem to indicate that they gave themselves to discussing and interacting with what was ever preached in the gathering points that they had, and so consequently, that model still exists today. And because it's taken away from this platform and taken down into a local context, people are able to engage with the Word. You know, they can get the Bible out and say, I don't believe that. They can say to you, I'm sorry, what you said there doesn't make sense to me. Could you go over that again for me, please? Because I'm not getting that. 
And they will have, and every small group should have, people who are older and mature in the faith and people who are exploring the faith. So they read the scriptures together. Acts chapter 2 have all of these things. They met together in each other's homes with glad and sincere hearts. Read it for yourself there. Okay? They fellowship together. The Bible says they devoted themselves. In other words, there was this huge commitment to the fellowship, a huge commitment to the relationships that were forming. And um, who doesn't want somebody to be hugely committed relationally? Aren't we tired of the superficiality of this world? Don't you long for meaningful relationships? You know, one of the most attractive things about the church is that we love one another. The third thing is that they took communion together. In other words, they kept Christ central and his crucifixion, his resurrection to absolutely everything. Now, I'm going to say something about this. People complain to me that we don't take communion enough. Do you know that in the New Testament church, they never did it in a large gathering? In the New Testament church, they did communion in the small gatherings. Can you imagine thousands of people meeting? How would you facilitate communion in those days? And they were called love feasts. They were far more meaningful than the quick fix we do sometimes. You can take communion in your small group. You can worship Jesus. You can confess your sins. You can be prayed for. You can repent of those things. And I want to suggest to you, it's not that we're saying we won't do it on a Sunday, but what can happen in a small group is far more meaningful than we could ever facilitate on a Sunday because we have a crowd. They prayed for one another. Now, some of you need prayer this morning. I know you do. I do. And how do we facilitate that? You'd have to have a word of knowledge. Otherwise, you're going to have to come and ask or ask someone next to you. But in a small group, have you noticed whenever there's a smaller setting, you can't hide? Have you noticed that? I used to love a lady in this church. Her name was Rini. She had a better mustache than I've ever had, Rini. She was the most glorious saint. And um, I invited her to my small group. I used to run two small groups. And uh, she came along, she was a great evangelist and great prayer, and she loved the Word of God. And she'd say, go on, Simon, go on, Simon. She really encouraged me. And um, I remember many, many times, you know, I'd come in and my life would be the mess it was back then, and she'd say, ah, come here. Sit there. Be quiet. She knew me well. And she would pray for me. Now, I could run, but with Rini, I couldn't hide. And you see, some of us have been hiding for so long, we've made a career out of it. And yet, at the same time, we're saying, nobody really cares what's happening in my life, Pastor. I had an ingrown toenail, and nobody came to see me. I've had it for three years. Look, I'm not trying to be facetious, but think it through, please. There's a logic to this. Wouldn't you find yourself better cared for? In a small group, they prayed for each other. And they helped each other in practical ways. The Bible says they sold their possessions as and when there was need. Now, this is the biggest test of us all here. And we're all nodding and saying, oh, not, I'm not giving up anything. But the, in other words, they painted the, the picket fence. They went along and cut the grass of an old lady who couldn't cut it for herself. Do you know, those expressions of Jesus are massively impactful on people outside the church. We saw a whole move of God start in Glasgow through acts of servanthood in the community, 
painting fences and cleaning the streets. The, the, the community noticed that the church was there. Up until that point, they didn't want us to be there because we took all the car parking spaces on a Sunday, but they became glad we were there. Here's a good one. They ate together. It says, with glad and sincere hearts. I think it's very difficult to eat without a glad or sincere heart, don't you? And even if your heart wasn't glad, when you see the food, it certainly becomes sincere. You're sincerely intent on filling your stomach with it. There's something about a meal. Now, I haven't got time, but every time you see a meal represented in the Scriptures, you do know what Jesus is doing, don't you? Jesus is completely and utterly eradicating the social systems, the religious systems of his day. Because in all of those arenas, the important people sat at the right seats at the table. You would eat according to your social status, okay? So the one who was the most important would be given the food first, and it would be the finest affair. Every time Jesus eats, he's saying, that system is not the kingdom of God. I don't see things the way people see things. Everyone is welcome. And in the Middle East, when you had a meal together, it was about family. It was about connection. It was about being part of something more than yourself. That's why the prodigal son was celebrated while the fatted calf was commiserated when he returned. They worshiped together. Finally, two minutes. What are the benefits for you of being in a small group? Well, Hebrews 10 verse 25 says, Do not give up meeting together, as some of you are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Church, we are at a time when the decisions we make right now about what we give our lives to will turn up in five or ten years' time. Okay, the choices you make today will determine where you will be in ten years' time. Make the right choices. And we need each other to do that well. The first thing I benefit from is it connects me to the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 27 says, Together you are the body of Christ. So together, not just individually, the second thing is I understand the Bible better because I'm learning from other people's perspectives and experiences. I can ask questions. The message says this wonderfully. It says this in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 30 to 31. It says, take your turn with no one person talking over. That way, each one of you gets a chance to say something special from God, and you will learn from each other. Prayer becomes more meaningful in a small group setting. Fourthly, and importantly, I'm able to handle life better because I have a community of people around me who encourage me and pray for me and offer their wisdom to me whenever things get rough. Amen? And it's a great place to practice unselfishness. So, I rest my case. I think if we're serious about fulfilling the dream of God to fill the earth with his glory, small groups cannot, for many reasons, just be some optional extra that a handful of people do in the life of a church. In fact, small groups need to become the church. And what we do on a Sunday becomes a celebration of all that God is doing from Saturday through to the following Monday. May the Lord bless his word to you as you ponder in your heart what you're going to do with this word. Have a great week.